Well, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 2. As we started last week, we are going to take the summer months to go through the Psalms. And we're going to start with Psalm 1, which we did last week. And I think we run up to Psalm 7 before we get to August, where we'll do our sermon series where you guys select the topics. But uh, this morning, we're in Psalm 2. And the Psalms, if you kind of crack the Bible up, open right down the middle, move a little bit to the left, you'll, you'll, you'll meet it eventually. And it's the largest book of the Bible. Before I read this, one of the things that um, I love about the Psalms and, and, and one of the ways that the Psalms were taught to me that I want to introduce to you, if this is new to you, is uh, what are the effects of singing the Psalms? And so the Psalms were known as the hymn book of the Bible, um, and uh, singing has an interesting and perhaps unnoticed effect on us. You know, maybe you, you, you turn on the radio in your car and you pick a station that you like and you find yourself singing that song. And it might just be something you do mindlessly, but singing actually uh, is an act of saying, I own the ideals or at least right, the, the message of what it is I'm saying, which actually means what we're seeing is formative. It shapes us. Uh, and so, yeah, we need to be careful about what we sing. Um, but that, that was the intent of the Psalms as well. And so one of the questions I'll be asking as we go through the Psalms is, what is the effect of singing this psalm? How does it change me? And, and what does it mean for us to sing that psalm? And so that's one of the things we'll actually do this morning. But I wanted to say that by word of introduction before I read Psalm 2. Let's give our attention now to the reading of Psalm 2. Uh, found in the book of Psalms. Beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that was just read and how it has made its way to College Park, Maryland in 2022 and how it's trustworthy, how it is your light to us. So we pray now that as we look at it, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not that we would understand more of what it means for you to be our king and what this psalm is trying to tell us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our girls have um, found the Hamilton soundtrack. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is 
the musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And this is the Broadway musical, I think 2015 or 16, so maybe we're a little late to this party. Um, but uh, we uh, have been enjoying it, and it's uh, historical, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, sort of historical. But one of the songs we like is called Your Be- you know, You'll Be Back. And this is, this is the character King George, Mad King George. This course, Alexander Hamilton, this is the Revolutionary War period in our history, just in case you don't know what I'm talking about. And uh, at this point in time in the musical, King George comes up and he sings this song, You'll Be Back. And of course, it's in reference to the American Revolution, uh, where King George wanted what? His loyal, royal subjects to come back to him, meaning the 13 American colonies at this time. And obviously, because we know how the story ends as it pertains to the Revolutionary War, this is a part of levity and almost humor in the musical. And, um, and as he goes on to sing, he sings this, You'll be back, soon you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. And then you get the fun chorus. He actually follows this up at the end with, when you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. And I'm sure my girls are humming the chorus at this point. Sounds like a lovely king, doesn't it? Uh, This morning we're talking about kingship, as as we've been saying. And for most of human history, Mad King George, and, and especially as it's portrayed here in this musical, reminds us in many ways, unfortunately, of what most kings are like. Not every king, for sure, but most kings, what, come to their subjects, give me your allegiance, bow your knee, and if you don't, I'm going to kill your friends and family. This is the type of coercion that that most of uh, human history is riddled with as it pertains to kings and their power and their desire for rule and authority. But, of course, it's all baked under the premise of, I'll do this, though, just to prove that I love you, to remind you of my love. But the Bible comes to us, and it gives us a completely different picture of a king. And we actually got to travel through this, really, one example in King David in the winter spring. But it gives us a completely different picture of a king, and that is the King Jesus, whom we are worshiping and talking about, of course, this morning. And that while... One day, as we know, every knee will bow before this king. Jesus doesn't coerce us into his own allegiance. He doesn't remind us of his love by doing harmful things to us, harmful things to our family even. Instead, he does what no other king does. And that is he lays down his own life for the sake of his own people. Not just to show us his love, but so that we will actually have a place of refuge when he returns. And this is what Psalm 2 tells us. And so why is this important today? And I want to suggest one thing. It's important to us today because Jesus reigns right now. 
And because he reigns right now, there's a part of us that has to sort of live in two different realities. The reality we experience here in this place now, the already but not yet tension of God's return, but in the reality, too, of his reigning over all things and trusting that he really is a good king. And we see that when we enter Scripture and see what this king actually did for us. Psalm 2 brings us into that story, and I want us to see that by way of looking at three things that are not printed in your bulletin. You'll see this in the rebellion in this text. You'll see this in the, God's response in this text, and you'll see this in our refuge in this text. So three things, the rebellion, God's response, and our refuge. So let's look at those. The rebellion, in the first three verses here of this text, the narrator gives voice to this Uh, to the rebellious rulers of earth, as you notice in the opening scene. Conflict, which is essential in any drama or story, if you've uh, been around the theater, is what we meet here in the very first verse. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? All right, it's a picture of rebellion and turmoil on earth, but who, who is this rebellion directed towards? Is it some evil dictator that has abused his power? Maybe a president of a country that has used his power for personal gain? No. This rebellion is directed towards God's anointed. And we see this in verse 2. And who would this be? Well, this is Jesus. See, at the time that this was written, perhaps around 950 B.C., no one knew specifically who God's anointed was and what this psalm made reference to. What what they would know is that in Genesis 3.15, going all the way back to the garden, we are introduced to this messianic hope. That is, this person who will put things to right by, quote, crushing the head of the serpent. But by the time we arrive in the Psalms, the messianic hope is now focused on a descendant of David. We get more and more of the story. And this descendant of David would be someone who would come from David's line and God would set him up as ruler over his people and he would bring peace through his rule to his people. And so for years, whether it was the high times of King David or the low times of captivity and Babylon that we read about in the 6th century, this psalm was sung as light to the future. To the one day, someday, when God's anointed would take his place as king and have authority over all things. Jumping ahead to the New Testament, the apostles in Acts 4 and and chapter 13 as well, they see God's anointed as finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, we hear echoes of Psalm 2 in reference to Jesus. First, in Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And in the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus referred to as what? The ruler of all kings of this earth. So God's anointed in verse 2 turns out to be Jesus Christ. And it's him then that this rebellion in verses 1 to 3 is actually directed. It's a revolt against God himself. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Psalm 2. He says, we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. A description of the hatred of human nature 
See, what the church has believed and what the scriptures have always attested to is that this rebellion that we see going on here in Psalm 2, it it isn't some isolated revolt in, in the ancient Near East that the writer was writing about. Nor is this some sort of localized uh, and contained um, uh, rebellion where just a few bad people or bad apples, sometimes we say, or even governments, you know, were rising up against God's anointed. No, this rebellion in Psalm 2 is an expression of the greater rebellion of the human heart against God himself. It is a picture of what is universally true about all of us, that our hearts come into this world alienated and at odds with its creator. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we are angry or antagonistic. Don't think about this in terms necessarily as only being a mob of violence towards God. It oftentimes simply shows itself by way of just being indifferent towards this God. The way we shrug him off in favor of living life how we want to. Either way, what the psalm assumes is that there is and probably will always be a group or a mass of people who want what? Nothing to do with God ever. And this, for example, is why ministry is so difficult. Whatever the church, wherever the church exists in the world, as one of my close friends puts it as he speaks about this text, this is what makes ministry so hard. Because not only is ministry done in the context that is typically unfriendly, but it is done to the very people who don't want it, those in rebellion against God and his anointed. I know that many of you have expressed the challenge of doing ministry in your neighborhoods, at work, or just in the area. Even to the extent that one might conclude, well, College Park and the D.C. area, well, it's just, it's a very difficult area to be Christian. It's a very difficult area to minister to. And, well, I would just say this psalm is acknowledging that. Matter of fact, have comfort because this psalm is telling you why that's the case. Nobody's looking for God unless what? God comes to them first. And softens their hearts and opens them up to him. The work that we are doing called ministry is crazy. It's it's impossible if it's done by ourselves. Which it's never intended to be done by ourselves, right? This is what Psalm 2, though, is pointing us to. That there is a rebellion going on. And all of us in here understand this. If it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't even be here entertaining the idea that we do love God. We get that right. So we understand this rebellion. We understand what is going on in the world. And we'll see later in Psalm 2 how it gives us hope and courage to do ministry in this area. But for now, we need to recognize the problem we face. Verses 1 to 3. That this psalm speaks to all of us as desiring our own authority over God himself. And unless he comes into our lives and changes our hearts, we don't want anything to do with him. This is the opening scene. This is the rebellion that Psalm 2 speaks of. So what is God's response to this? And this gets to the second point here, God's response. 
the initial response to the rebellion is this. As we look at verses 4 to 6, first, God is not alarmed, nor is he surprised. He's not caught off guard, if you will. Verse 4, the narrator tells us this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So what, is, what is God doing here? He's what? He's, he's mocking them. He's mocking these rulers. He's laughing at those who would think they would somehow or could somehow, what, usurp his authority. That the creation could somehow take down the creator. My brother and I fought a lot growing up. I've got a brother who's three years older than me. Some of y'all know that. Um, And we, we fought so much growing up that my parents hired a black belt in karate to be our babysitter. He was also our, my middle school youth director, but his name was David, and he, he, he had more than just a black belt, and it was probably the right thing to do. But we would get into it at some point, as siblings sometimes do, and, um, and he would pull us apart and send us to different corners of the house. But so sometimes in my own anger and frustration, I would still want to go at my brother. And, and this is when he would do that. This is why I get so angry with the martial arts, because I don't know any of them. And he would just kind of take his finger and do one of those pressure point things. And some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Please don't do this to me after the service. <laughs> but he, he would just do something, and immediately this pain would rush in, and I would just collapse, and I would, you know, the, the, he would disarm the whole thing. But even still, my seventh grade self would rise up and try to now take on my youth director, babysitter, black belt and karate, whom I love, love, love. Let me, just suffice, let me just say this. David was never concerned about the seventh grader who attempted to overrule his authority. Nor should he be. And when the psalmist says that the Lord is laughing, it is actually pointing out the ridiculousness of the rebellion. Hear that. For some of us this morning, this is where we need to camp out in this psalm. Because for some of us, the opposition seems real. And it really does frighten us. Some of us aren't really sure what we can, what we can and can't talk about at work for fear of either being labeled and isolated and marginalized in another way or perhaps fired even. And that just for being a Christian. For many in other parts of the world, martyrdom is some ways a way of life. This could happen at any given day. So for many, this rebellion that the psalm talks about, this opposition against God's anointed is very real, and we aren't really sure what to do with it at times. In fact, you might say that this is where the apostles found themselves early in their ministry, especially as you look at Acts 4. You go back and read the book of Acts, There's a lot of uncertainty at first. See, Peter and John had just been arrested for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem by by some of the authorities there. But instead of receiving jail time or worse, the rulers let them go, and they let them go on these terms. They were to never speak in the name of Jesus again. That's a tough place to be. That's a tough place to be. After seeing... What they did to Jesus, how ridiculous does this rebellion and opposition seem when you are faced with a statement like that? 
I love reading some of the commentary from James Montgomery Boyce on uh, Psalm 2 here, who quoted several examples over the years where rulers have claimed to put an end to the God of the Bible. In one, he quotes the emperor Diocletian, uh, a great foe of Christianity, who in the late 3rd and 4th century, listen to this, struck a medal which bore the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. Later, he extended the Roman Empire west into Spain, there erecting two monuments, one which read this, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Herculeus, Caesareus, Augusti, six names, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. Can you imagine living during this time under his reign? I mean, what would you be thinking here? And more importantly, would Psalm 2 even speak to you in that moment? And see, that's where some of us are, which is fine. That's where some of us are this morning. We are paralyzed by fear and uncertainty, and it may not be the fear of martyrdom or of rulers or kings coming in to take us out, but the normal, everyday fear of life that seems to creep in. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family, my kids, right? Am, we, am I in the right school? What's going to happen to this country? What's going to happen uh, to America? Is it going to make it, right? What's going to happen to the church? We talked a lot about that this week in Birmingham for General Assembly. Is it under attack? So many ways, right? So many fears that tend to creep in. Does Psalm 2 actually speak into this this morning? And I think it does. I know it does. In the same way that history would tell us Diocletian didn't abolish Christianity. Your testimony did that this morning, by the way. In fact, we know that at this time, even during his reign and in one of the worst seasons of persecution, the what? The church grew faster and faster and faster. More and more and more. But like, even if it didn't, even if the Lord didn't allow that to happen, uh, the church to grow out of this persecution, nothing is going to usurp his authority as king. This is the reality. He who sits in the heavens laughs, friends. And why is God laughing? And verse 6 tells us, we read that God is laughing because why? He has already set his king on his holy hill. Look at that. It's done. It's not a question of whether or not this might happen. This is a question of it has happened, or that's not really a question, it's a statement. He has set his king on his holy hill. In other words, God, God's anointed reigns now. Jesus in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in the giving of the Holy Spirit, what? Reigns. And what that might mean for you this morning is just a moment to be able to what? Catch your breath. To be able to catch your breath, right? And what, 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 what I mean by that is that for this morning, you might be able to lift your head from the seduction of this world that just takes and takes and takes and takes and know what, that this is not the end. 
This is not what, what is in control and how the rest of the story plays out, nor is anything going on here that is a, a surprise to this king. Jesus, God's anointed, reigns. And I think this is one of the, the wonderful things the psalm does for us. They offer us what? Pictures and glimpses into who God is and what he is doing when our hearts are what? Afraid. And the psalms are very honest about that. When they're confused, when our hearts are unsure of what's happening, the psalms bring us into God's world his reality. It's almost as if the Psalms, in, in a way, when we have nothing left to sing, they begin to what? Sing for us. The reality of what it means to live in a world that is owned by God, but where he, His anointed reigns and is reigning. He is not surprised. He is not worried. His anointed is set as king on His hill, and nothing, nothing will ever change that. This is God's response. That's his response. Well, how does this all end? If our hearts are in rebellion, yet God has set his king on his holy hill, what, what, what must we do? And this gets to the final point. We must seek refuge in this king. We must seek refuge in this king. Look at verses 7 to 9. Many scholars and commentaries recognize the language here as one of a coronation ceremony. Coronation ceremony is a crowning of a sovereign. It's an anointing of the anointed. And there are a lot of things going on here in these three verses, and I wish we had time to unpack them all. But let me just point out one of them. After a title is given here in this text, Verse 7, the anointed is then what referred to as God's son. And we see that this king receives then his inheritance by virtue of being now related to God. And what is that inheritance? We spoke about this a few weeks ago. Verse 8, all the nations right, are coming under his authority. The whole earth has been given to him as a possession. And then in verse 9, we see that he will what? Dash them to pieces which means that he will actually subdue them. What does that mean? Well, as one pastor puts it, it means that the king will conquer the world because why? The world is now his by right. The world is now his by right. By the time that we get then to verse 12, those in rebellion are actually given an option. They can carry on with their rebellion, knowing it will do no good and only lead to utter destruction, or, or they can kiss the sun. Verse 12, which was a gesture of what? A gesture of submission, of coming under the reign of that king. There is no other option, though. And this is why, according to Psalm 2, there is no refuge from Jesus the king except refuge in Jesus the king. Let me say that one more time. There is no refuge from Jesus the king except refuge in Jesus the king. It's why the wicked, as we saw last week, will not stand in the judgment in Psalm 1. It's also why many believe Psalm 1 and 2 actually go together. There is no refuge from Jesus the King except refuge in Jesus the King. And one of the things that this means for us this morning is that for the world to now belong to Jesus by right, as God's anointed, it means that it is far worse for you or for I to fear men than to fear this King. 
It is far worse to fear, fear man than it is to fear this king. And this is exactly how the apostles used Psalm 2. I think I got that backwards, actually. It's far worse to fear King Jesus than it is to fear men. We get that for the record. And this is how the apostles in Psalm 2 actually use this throughout the New Testament, especially in Acts 4. Having been given the ultimatum by a Roman authority, as we saw briefly just a few minutes ago, to never speak in the name of Jesus again, the apostles considered what this psalm now meant, what, in light of Jesus' reign, in light of his his resurrection. That if Jesus was truly God's anointed, and if he now sits and reigns, not only is it worse to fear these Roman authorities over Jesus, right, but it's actually foolish to do so. It is foolish to do so if all authority on heaven and earth has been given to King Jesus. So for the world to now be Jesus's by right means that it is far worse to fear him than it is to fear this king, or far worse to fear this king than it is to fear man. And this is where the apostles find the courage to do ministry in the book of Acts. Not only did they see Jesus after his resurrection, right, and after his death, they knew that he was God. They knew that he was God's anointed, and they realized now it was now foolish to fear any other king, no matter what they would put in front of them, especially death itself, which further meant that the apostles had to begin thinking not of this world, but of the world to come. And see, this gets to the further application for us and for the church today. If we are not thinking of the world to come, the new heavens and earth, by virtue of Jesus reigning right now, The world to come then that has been given to him, to Jesus, where he will reign forever. If we are not thinking about that world every day while we live in this one, then the hope the gospel offers will never empower Christians to be light in very dark places. And instead, hope would diminish because fear grows. I've heard the statement many times and in many sermons, and it's true, those in the church who did the most in this world were thinking about the next one. And I'm not saying that we ought to be people who are too heavily minded to be any earthly good. That's different. But those in the church who did the most in this world were thinking about uh, the next one. Consider William Wilberforce, who fought to abolish the slave trade in Europe. Saul has faith in God as having dramatic consequences for people's lives here and now. As a member of parliament, he is quoted as saying, I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. The advance or decline of faith is so intimately connected to the welfare of a society that it should be of a particular interest to a politician. Interesting. In other words, faith is no private matter for Christians. And for Wilberforce, it was the simple matter of wondering this. Will there be slaves in God's new heaven and earth? Is the owning of a human being indicative of God's character? No. Then I know what my life's work should be here now for whatever might, it might cost me in the future. We pray in our Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it what is in heaven. If we are not thinking about the future city of God that our faith is tied us to today, 
how will we ever know as the church what we are to begin working towards tomorrow? Other than that, we just bury our heads in the sand. If we are not thinking of the world to come every day while we live in this world, then the hope the gospel offers will never change us, nor will it become attractive to those who don't believe, who are looking for hope. And what will begin to define us then is the very fear that the gospel has set us free from and the love of Christ our King who didn't use his authority to oppress or conquer, but he used his authority to serve and to lay down his life for the very hearts of those who rebelled against him. And this is what ultimately made, in some senses, the apostles the apostles. They not only lived lives caught up in the reality of who was truly king, they knew the love that this king had for them. It's not just an objective sort of um, logical conclusion that if Jesus is king, then it's more foolish to, to, to disregard him than it is earthly rulers. They saw his love for them. And that, friends, is what said, we will stand here and we will do whatever. For the sake of our King. This is what makes Jesus different. This is what makes him um, someone that anybody, especially outside of the church, could and why they should consider believing and trusting in him. Going back to the apostles, this is what also led them, like their King, to go into the world to lay down their life for others as well. And I would suggest to you that this is what the psalm is encouraging us to do at this point. That because Jesus is reigning, because all authority has been given to him, and because he is the one whom we must seek and find refuge in, it isn't just sort of this logical conclusion that we may be uh, taken out of harm's way, but we're actually given the freedom then what? To lay our life down for others. Do you see that? This is how the church is to be the church. And that doesn't mean that we lay down our lives uh, in in foolish ways uh, where we uh, look to get ourselves martyred in one sense, to go to the extreme. But we have every reason to be gracious and kind, um, to serve in the most humiliating of ways even, that Christ may come forward in that way. Because we don't question what's going to happen in the end. We don't question who's reigning. We don't question who we're serving. We know who we are serving. So what does this mean for Monday morning? This is a lot to take in. I'm going to leave us with one thing here. And I want to get to it by the question I posed at the beginning. What does it mean to sing this psalm? And I've kind of touched on it already. What does it mean to sing Psalm 2 today? One suggestion, though there are many, is, is this. That for us to sing this psalm today is to have hope lived out in patience in the midst of so much uncertainty and confusion, knowing that Christ reigns. That's a mouthful. It's to have hope lived out in patience in the midst of so much uncertainty and confusion, knowing our King reigns. That the church might actually be 
for this time, the non-anxious presence in a world full of anxiety, fear, and uncertainty, because you know what's true. You know who you serve. You know who reigns. We cannot be people who are unengaged in the world, but what have, at the very least, a faithful presence in it. I heard a sermon recently quote the early church philosopher Tertullian, who said this, hope is patience with the lamp lit. I like that. Hope is patience with the lamp lit. That no matter how dark it gets, even when you can't see the end, how it all finishes, or how what you uh, can see, what maybe doesn't make sense to you, whatever your circumstances are telling you, we wait for it with patience. Why? For he who sits in the heavens laughs. For he has set his king on Zion, his holy What is it that they or we are being patient for? What is our hope sure of? It's being patient for and sure of our king's return. Our king's return, where the nations will be his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession, where he will rule it righteously with his people forever. In other words, sure that Jesus truly is who he says that he is. Reigning king, one who has been given all authority, one who is not ashamed to call you brother or sister, one who has laid his life down for you so that you would know what type of king he truly is. Friends, that's a song I can sing. That's Psalm 2. That's a song I can sing. That's a story I want to belong to, and I would invite you to do the same this morning. And T. Wright puts it like this. Whatever Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were doing in writing the final sections of their books, these are the Gospels, they were not telling the story of Jesus' resurrection as a, as a happy ending. They were telling it, what, as a startling new beginning. Maybe the biggest struggle today as the church, maybe for you individually as a Christian, is that we are so caught up looking for that final peace and rest and comfort here. Now in our lives, in our circumstances, our personal happiness, as it were, that we forget this new beginning that we are already a part of in Jesus Christ. As the one true king who reigns over all things. Would Psalm 2, Psalm 2 refresh us of that reality this morning? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess and acknowledge what, is, what this psalm speaks of. Before your full redemption was put in place, that you have set your anointed on your holy hill, that Jesus reigns. And maybe for some of us in here, we just need to sit in that and adjust our lives accordingly and take a breath and rest in the fact that you are over all things. Maybe that leads us into repenting of controlling areas that we think are, are what's necessary to be done in order to make sure you're reigning. 
Maybe some of us are looking for that type of kingship in a world that is offering uh, happiness, comfort for anyone who would come under its allegiance. And we see this in 10,000 different ways throughout our culture. Would we as your church, living in the reality of, of, of Psalm 2, recognizing that this is what's true and certain for all time, would you use us as we live that out in our own lives to draw others into the freedom and the blessing that this psalm speaks of? That you are not concerned or fooled by what is going on. In fact, you laugh at those in rebellion against you because there is nothing any of them can do usurp your authority. And would that not fill us with pride as your people, but would it remind us of why, why we will not face your wrath when you return? It's because we find refuge in Jesus. We find refuge in Jesus. It is by grace alone that that is true. Go with us now as we come to your table and we're reminded of this reality of how it comes about by the giving of yourself to us, that we may in turn trust and learn to give ourselves to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.